So I'm recording right, and then I need to go up. Am I good? Are you recording? It says it's recording right now. Yep. Okay. All right. Good morning, brothers. Let's uh, let's get started. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll get rolling. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning, um, that we um, have life and breath and We pray that we would use what you've given us today, this day that you've put in front of us, uh, to fulfill the vocations you've given us for your glory, that we would honor you, that we would remember that we are pilgrims um, looking forward to a better country, um, that your name would be exalted among us. Uh, We pray as we consider the book of Daniel, um, particularly chapter 8 in this vision, Daniel has, um, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, um, we'd understand your word and, and rejoice in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we're um, jumping into um, the ram, the goat, and the little horn, um, this vision in Daniel 8. I was working in Daniel 8 through 12 and I thought, I'll just do it all in one week, and then I decided it's probably worth slowing down. Um, I, it, it may just be Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and then Daniel 10 through 12. Um, I think 10 through 12 comes together as a fairly good unit, but, but we'll see. At least it's going to be Daniel 8 and then Daniel 9. So we'll deal with, um, the, particularly in Daniel 9, there's Daniel's prayer at the front end, which we'll look at briefly in Daniel 9 next week, but um, we'll spend more of our time on the 70 weeks, the actual answer to the prayer that he receives um, so when you're reading this week, read both, consider both the prayer and, and the 70 weeks and how that, how the answer he gets refers to that prayer. So as you're prepare, uh, preparing for next week, but, um, this morning we want to look at Daniel eight. And so here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to read through this chapter, um, and then just sort of walk back through it. So let's, let's look there. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, which king? Or which kingdom are we in? Babylonian kingdom. Remember, I told you guys that these kind of these tend to go back and forth as far as um, time time frame. Look at Daniel seven, though, real quick at the very beginning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Okay, so we're between Daniel seven, and Daniel eight. These. These visions have come fairly close together, two years apart. Are you guys tracking with that? Two years apart. Um, Daniel 6, obviously, you're dealing with Darius, so you're in Medo-Persia in Daniel 6. In other words, um, these, these chapters sometimes fall in chronological order, but generally not. Um, in this case, they do, but this vision is two years after the vision of Daniel 7, Okay, so Daniel 7 of the four kingdoms, remember the four beasts, followed by the coming son of man, etc. Um, and there was there a picture of a little horn as well. And so we're going to look at that, that here. Um, though those two, the two little horns, the little horn we're going to see in chapter 8, the little horn we saw in chapter 7 are two different little horns. Um, and so we'll talk about that. Um, this morning and press into it a little more. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. 
And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I saw in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I was in, sorry, Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host of um, some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to, to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell in a deep, into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. 
And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall rise up, even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. As I, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, and I rose and went out about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Well, we could probably guess why. Um, so there's, um, there's this vision of the ram, the goat, and the little horn. Um, the ram that you see is a reference to Medo-Persia. Now, how do we know that? This two-horned ram, how do we know that? Because Gabriel, so. Gabriel says so, right? It's right in the text. We don't, we're not having to make any kind of you know, educated guesses here. The text tells us um, in verse 20 that the ram is Medo-Persia. Now, Medo-Persia rules over Israel from, that shouldn't, uh, yeah, 539 B.C. to about 331 B.C., so around, um, around 200 years, um, they're ruling there. Um, I'm tentative to place years on it because it depends on how you define certain terms of rule. Um, so if you, and if you know much about the history of these kingdoms and how they're divided up and how they're per parts of them... It just, it becomes a little bit difficult. But let's just say somewhere in that time frame. Fair enough? Okay. Um, that there's, there's some debate about that, um, where, where we break those, those years for a variety of reasons. Um, so that's the ram of Medo-Persia. It rules over Israel uh, for that time period. And we have a description of it as a ram with two horns, one greater than the other. Why is one great horn greater than the other? Why, how come every time Medo-Persia gets described, you get a description like it's a bear with one side higher than the other or a ram with two horns, one horn bigger than the other? Even though it's a partnership kingdom, Persia is the greater of the two. Correct. It's a partnership kingdom, but Persia is the greater of the two. That's exactly right. Um, and so we, we see that description. Then after the ram, the ram is destroyed by who? Yeah, so the goat of Greece rules, um, should say rules, um, um, or well, I could have put Greek rule over Israel in this chapter from 331 BC to 164 BC, right in that time frame um, is when uh, they rule. So let's look specifically at the goat because Medo-Persia we've looked at, but let's look at the description of the goat for a minute. Look at verse five, and we're gonna see, uh, by the way, Daniel's not only seeing a vision of Greece, which, which mind you, I, I just, I want you to give this some thought. Daniel's describing the end of Medo-Persia by Greece and Alexander the Great um, over 200 years before it happens. What do you guess liberal scholars thus want to do with this book? Yeah, they want to move the date, right? Oh, this is the first or second century B.C., um, at best, right? Now, they just want to, here's the reason. 
No one can tell you the future. Therefore, we know this was the first or second century BC. You understand how that works? Okay. Um, not a lot of internal uh, reasons in the text to argue that, except we just know a priori. Do you guys know what I mean when I say a priori? We basically know beforehand that you can't have somebody telling you the future. So it's got to be dated after all these events. Um, Daniel 8, 5, look there. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, before we continue on, what, what's, what's being emphasized here about Greece? The speed. Yeah, it's, it's the speed. Does anybody know why um, Daniel might be referencing there? Do, what do we know about Alexander the Great and Greece's movement in that time period? Oh, it was, yeah, he lightning fast conquering of the whole known world, essentially. Um, and Daniel's emphasizing that beforehand, right? There's one coming, and he's going to emphasize Alexander the Great. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, right? A conspicuous horn. So we wanted, he, he runs down Medo-Persia pretty fast um, and breaks the two horns, etc. But look down at Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn, that conspicuous horn, was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous hor horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Alexander the Great is the great horn. Look down at verse 21 as well. And the goat is the king of, Gre is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is who? The first king. Okay, that's Alexander the Great. What's interesting is he's going to rush in with exceeding speed, conquer the area um, in a way that nobody, it, you know, faster than anybody really ever has. Um, and then he's going to be broken. The horn is going to be, this conspicuous great horn is going to be broken and it's going to be broken into four kingdoms. Now what we know is his kingdom was in fact split into four. Alexander the Great dies fairly young. Um, and uh, relatively quickly, if you will, um, just as a total side note, because as a work of God's providence, um, I, I want I'll, I'll just take this side note. It doesn't really have anything to do with Daniel 8, except that um, obvious, obviously we're referencing Alexander the Great in Greece. <clears throat> I want you to, I want to ask you a question about providentially. You know, it's, I don't generally recommend um, you try to read Providence. You guys know what I mean by that? The book of Providence, or the, when I say the book of Providence, the way that God is working in history around us. Like you guys look around, Ukraine and Russia in a war. What's God doing? There's inflation in America. There's this, there's that. Probably judging, but what, what's, you know, but you, you want to be careful that you want to, you don't want to make conclusions. What's he judging us for, right? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And people love to make very definitive kinds of conclusions about that sort of thing and want to be careful. Um, but Flavel, um, I say Flavel, but 
Ian Hamilton tells me it's Flavel, John Flavel. So I, I remember that because I just think Flavel Flav, that's how I keep it in my mind. <laughs> Sorry, you know, you gotta, have a, you gotta have a mnemonic device, right? That would not make Ian happy to hear, but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 he, he, he wouldn't. John Flavel, um, he, he, he wrote a book on Providence, quite good, um, but he actually says Providence is a book you only, you only, read, um, you only read backwards. In other words, you only, you only look back and try to figure out to some degree what the Lord is doing in history. So I, I want to I read a little Providence here because I think this is almost entirely obvious on the surface in history now. Daniel's prophesying the coming of these four, king, four kingdoms followed by what? What's coming in the fourth kingdom? The kingdom of God, namely under the ministry of the Messiah, the Christ we've been waiting for. Um, what's the problem in the world at the time when it comes to getting the message out about that Messiah? Well, transportation will be one. So um, ways to get around the kingdom peacefully and quickly would be one. That's going to get resolved in the fourth kingdom. Language. language. They all speak different languages. Um, they all speak different languages. In God's providence, Alexander the Great comes in as the king. Alexander the Great is tutored by who? Aristotle. Aristotle. And what does Aristotle teach Alexander the Great needs to happen if you're going to unify an empire? Got to have a common language and a common currency. So Alexander the Great enforces a common language and a common currency, and you get the Greek language predominating the, the known world. Um, and that continues in the Roman Empire, incidentally. We transition to Latin after a long period of time, but it continues in the Roman Empire. Rome is going to bring in um, the Roman roads and what, we, like what has been called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the ability to easily move around the empire to peoples who are all having a common language. All happens um, by the providential working of God prophesied hundreds of years before it occurs, creating the conditions by which the gospel might spread. Not accidental. So you think, what was Aristotle or Alexander the Great's place in Christian history? They, all, they both have one. Maybe unbeknownst to them. Um, I'm sure they're aware now. But... <laughs> they have one. All right, so um, his kingdom was split into four, Alexander the Great's kingdom, um, the Ptolemaic kingdom of, of Egypt, if you will, the Seleucid Empire in the east, uh, the kingdom of Pergamum in Asia Minor, um, and the kingdom of Macedon in Greece, etc. I just put Greece at all because it's not just Macedon isn't just relegated merely to Greece, but Macedonia, that area. So um, th this is, in fact, what happens, which Daniel says is coming. The great horn will be broken um, and split into four, which is exactly what occurs. Um, now, look at verse 
Um, I said verse 8, the four winds of heaven. Look at verse 21 and 22 real quickly. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. In other words, they're going to arise, but they're not going to have the same power that he has, um, which, which they didn't. Now let's talk about the next little horn. Um, so the, the, this, this great horn is broken. Four conspicuous horns arise. Now let's read verses 9 um, through 14 and look at the little horn specifically. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south. <clears throat> Where is that taking us? If we're going toward the south from the referent of the author... We're going toward what? So I'm just going to tell you this little key. Where, where, where are you headed? Egypt. Toward Egypt, toward the Ptolemaic Empire, right? Or, okay, um, toward that. Toward the south, toward the east, right? So you're moving now toward the Seleucid Empire, right? And toward the glorious land. So you're talking about Israel, the Holy Land. Okay, so he's, he's, in other words, he's kind of, he's having some rule in these areas. If you think, imagine the area of the, the world, Israel, um, the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire. In other words, he's moving toward, toward Egypt, um, toward Assyria, etc. you know, those, those directions toward, and, and in the, the Promised Land. So he's just in that little area of the world, if you will. Um, it grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. When it references the stars in Daniel or the host, what's that a reference to? Anybody know? The stars and the host. Let, let me... Um, it, it's actually a reference to God's people. Um, so... You, you can see that in a few different places. Look, look at Daniel 12 really briefly. Daniel 12. Um, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. He's referencing the coming resurrection, which we'll deal with later. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's this reference to those who are God's people, right? Um, we'll see that as well in Daniel 7, um, etc. So he's referencing the idea that they're tra these, these people are trampling, or this little horn is trampling down on God's people. That's what he's trampling underfoot, okay? Clear enough? All right? He's trampling them underfoot in the glorious land. And Lo says, it became great, even as great as the prince of host of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. What's the regular burnt offering? When he says the regular burnt offering is taken away, what's that a reference to? Sacrifices in the temple. Okay. Um, remember, Israel's going to return to the land on, under Ezra and Nehemiah and going to rebuild the temple. Guys remember that? And going to reinstitute the sacrificial system. Um, 
That's going to happen during Medo-Persia. Okay? Um, technically, under the decree of Artaxerxes, he'll decree the rebuilding of the temple. Now, they're offering sacrifices, and this little horn is going to come in, trample them underfoot. He's, he's, he's in one of the four kingdoms, right? Split off from Greece. Going to trample them underfoot, and he's going to end their burnt offerings, right? Um, the burnt offering is the ascension. So if you guys know anything about the sacrificial system in Leviticus, um, whenever you got the burnt offering, what happened to it? The, the, ho- the, the, the thing being offered becomes entirely consumed, and the smoke ascends, and it's a pleasant aroma on the nostrils of the Lord. You guys remember that kind of language? Okay. That's a reference to ascension. The idea that, this, that, that it's the sacrifice that stands in our place is not only... Be, it's not only atoning for us with its blood, but it's actually rising and ascending to the Lord. And so it's a reference to our coming ascension as God's people to him. Um, all right, so there, 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 this, there's a, this whole system is, is very elaborate. All right, so he says, um, he, he makes this comment, and the place, the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the place of a sanctuary was overthrown. Right, so that's the overthrow of God's temple. And a host, not, not the destruction, but an overthrow in the sense that it's going to be used for something else. And a host uh, will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So the little horn's going to come into the glorious land, trample underfoot God's people, bring an end to um, the sacrificial system and the proper use of God's sanctuary, and he's going to throw truth to the ground, and he's going to prosper doing it. Okay. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, "For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and, and host to be trampled underfoot?" And he said to me. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, so here he essentially sees these two angels interacting. <clears throat> How long is this going to continue for? How long, what, what's Daniel's, what, what's the concern, if you will, in the text about how long is what going to continue? Hmm? The being trampled underfoot, the... The removal of the burnt offering and this, this sort of, notice what he says, very specific language, the transgression that makes desolate, okay? Um, in other places, this will be referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. Now, if you know enough about the Bible, I don't care what eschatological view you have, we all agree on this, um, what's the abomination that causes desolation. What what kind of act? What what's the sort of act that occurs there? Brett. Yeah, yeah. So, fal- false worship, a worship of a false god in God's temple, right? Um, and specifically in this case, it's going to be the sacrifice of a pig to Zeus. Like so, you understand. Um, the abomination caused desolation here is a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth, we're going to talk about that, this little horn, 
Um, the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Of the Seleucid Empire, he, he rules circa 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. Um, and and he, he literally goes into the temple and, and the places wherever Israel's doing sacrifices at the time, and he basically begins to ma- um, commit abomination there. The abomination being, we're going to sacrifice pigs. Okay, what's the problem for a Jew with the sacrificing of a pig? It's an unclean animal, right? It's just right in their face. We're going to sacrifice pigs in the temple. You don't bring anything unclean to God's face. And um, we're going to do it in the temple, and we're going to do it on the altar, and we're going to worship Zeus. Right? You guys see the problem here? And this is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes IV does. Now, Daniel's telling you about that. Um, It's in 175. Daniel's dying in the 500s. So do the math, right? 300 plus years, almost 400 years beforehand. Um, 300 and some change, technically. So let's talk about the little horn. He takes the land, he destroys the people, and he desolates, I should say, desolates the temple and sacrifice. This abomination, or this abominable desolation, takes place for 2,300 evenings and mornings, or approximately 3.5 years. Um, the 2,300 evenings and mornings extends from 167 AD to 164 AD. We actually know that uh, from a variety of sources, but um, wh- how do, why do I say 2,300 evenings and mornings is three and a half years? If you do the math on, on that, that seems like more than that. So wh- why is that? 2,300 evenings and mornings is a reference to 1,150 days. In other words, an evening and a morning is a day. And you guys go, well, we don't order things that way, but the Jews do. So if you've been with us in Genesis 1, um, what, have I, what do I keep referencing? Um, what, in Genesis 1, evening and morning is how they marked a day, not morning and evening. Right? So, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. You guys remember that? Okay. Um, all right. 1150 days. Now, they're using lunar months. How long is a lunar month? 28 days. Okay times 12 months equals 336 days, thus approximately 3.5 years, okay? Um, Now, you're going to see this reference in other places, time, times, and half a time. Time, one year, times, two years, half, uh, half a time, half a year, three and a half years, this, this kind of number is going to keep coming up in Daniel. You need to pay attention to it. It's going to, co- it's going to be referenced different ways, but three and a half years. So why three and a half years? It's half a complete period. So we've got to come back to the understanding for Jews, and I'm going to sp- spend more time on this in Daniel 9, particularly in the 70 weeks. But a half, 3.5, a half of seven, um, is an intentional referent. In other words, the idea is it's not going to go on um, to, it's not going to go on forever. It's not, it's not going to be a, com- a complete period of time in that sense. It's, it's, going to be a part, it's going to be a short period of time. You guys follow that? It's not exactly... By the way, Antiochus Epiphany, um, the fourth abomination of desolation, the offering of these... 
animals does happen just, just over three years. It does go on for just over three years. Um, but we don't want to be mathematically precise about it in the sense that it's not, not exactly that. And so we've we got to be careful. Just like when we look at the 70 weeks, you're going to be in exile for 70 weeks. Well, in fact, Israel is not in exile for 70 weeks. So what's up with that? Right? So we'll have to deal with that next week. But um, <clears throat> so not exactly. So we're talking about complete time versus incomplete time here. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, IV was overthrown by the Maccabean revolt. Did anybody attempt to read 1 Maccabees, the first couple chapters? You did? Yeah, so I mean, if you don't own it, you could just look it up online. But I'm going to read the first couple chapters to you just so you can, you can hear the reference. What did you say, Jared? Oh, did you get up and read it this morning? Good for you. Um, you got up earlier than everybody else, probably. All right, so um, this is my little copy of the Apocrypha in the King James Version, by the way. I wouldn't recommend you buy it because look how tiny the print is. So I've got to get the glasses well affixed to read it at this point. Um, but, but I want you to hear the first book of Maccabees only because I want you to hear about this period of time. Um, and this is the period of time that brings about what we're going to call, what, what becomes called Hanukkah. Right, what the Jews celebrate at Hanukkah. So one of the good reasons to read this is just because you want to understand what are the Jews doing at Hanukkah. And, and Jesus and the apostles would have, would have participated in Hanukkah, by the way. I'm not saying we should. Um, just like I'm not saying we, should, we shouldn't participate in the Passover or the Day of Atonement or anything else anymore. But they did. Um, and, and so notice what it says. L listen, listen to the text. And it happened... After that, Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian, who came out of the land of Chetam, had smitten Darius, king of the Persians and Medes, that he reigned in his stead the first over Greece, and made many wars, and won many strongholds, and slew the kings of the earth, and went through to the ends of the earth, and took spoils of many nations, insomuch that the earth was quiet before him, whereupon he was exalted. And his heart was lifted up. And he gathered a mighty strong host and ruled over countries and nations and kings who became tributaries unto him. And after these things, he fell sick and perceived that he should die. Wherefore, he called his servants, such as were honorable and had been brought up with him from his youth, and parted his kingdom among them while he was yet alive. So Alexander reigned 12 years and then died. And his servants bear rule every one in his place. And after his death, they all put crowns upon themselves. So did their sons after them many years, and evils were multiplied in the earth. And there came out of them a wicked root, Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, son of Antiochus the king, who had been a hostage at Rome, and he reigned in the hundred and thirty and seventh year of the, kingdoms of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days went there out of Israel wicked men, who persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathen that are round about us. For since we departed from them, we have had much sorrow. So this device pleased them well. So here's Israel making a covenant with pagan nations. Anyway, then certain of the people were so forward herein, 
that they went to the king who gave them license to do after the ordinances of the heathen. Whereupon they built a place of exercise at Jerusalem according to customs of the heathen and made themselves uncircumcised and forsook the holy covenant. That's reference to Abrahamic covenant, etc. And joined themselves to the heathen and were sold to do mischief. Now when the kingdom was established before Antiochus, he thought to reign over Egypt, that he might have dominion of the two realms. Wherefore he entered into Egypt with a great multitude, with chariots and elephants and horsemen and a great navy, and made war against Ptolemy, king of Egypt. But Ptolemy was afraid of him and fled, and many were wounded to death. Thus they got the strong cities in the land of Egypt, and he took the spoils thereof. And after that, Antiochus had smitten, after that, Antiochus had smitten Egypt, he returned again in the 143rd year and went up against Israel and Jerusalem with a great multitude and entered proudly into the sanctuary and took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light and all the vessels thereof and the table of the showbread and the pouring vessels and the vials and the censers of gold and the veil and the crowns and the golden ornaments that were before the temple, all which he pulled off. He took also the silver and the gold and the precious vessels. Also he took the hidden treasures which he found. And when he had taken all away, he went into his own land, having made a great massacre and spoken very proudly. Therefore there was great mourning in Israel in every place where they were. So that the princes and elders mourned. Now, I want to emphasize this. There are elders in Israel, like all the way back to Exodus. Elders don't drop out of heaven in the New Testament. They exist all the way from Moses. There were elders there, right? It goes on. They mourned. The virgins and young men were made feeble, and the beauty of women was changed. Every bridegroom took up lamentation, and she that sat in the marriage chamber was in heaviness. The land also was moved for the inhabitants thereof, and all the house of Jacob was covered with confusion. And after two years fully expired, the king sent his chief collector of tribute unto the cities of Judah, who came into Jerusalem with a great multitude, and spake peaceable words unto them, but all was deceit. For when they had given him credence, he fell suddenly upon the city and smote it very sore, and destroyed much people of Israel." And when he had taken the spoils of the city, he set it on fire and pulled down the houses and walls thereof on every side. But the women and children took they captive and possessed the cattle. Then builded they the city of David with a great and strong wall and with mighty towers and made it a stronghold for them. And they put therein a sinful nation, wicked men, and fortified themselves therein. They stored it also with armor and victuals. And when they had gathered together the spoils of Jerusalem, they laid them up there so they became a sore snare, for it was a place to lie in wait against the sanctuary and an evil adversary to Israel. Thus they shed innocent blood on every side of the sanctuary and defiled it, insomuch that the inhabitants of Jerusalem fled because of them, whereupon the city was made in a habitation of strangers and became strange to those that were born in her, and her own children left her. Her sanctuary was laid waste like a wilderness. Her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into reproach, her honor into contempt. As had been her glory, so was her dishonor increased, and her excellency was turned into mourning. Moreover, King Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people, 
and everyone should, ha- should leave his laws. So all the heathen agreed according to the commandment of the king. Yea, many also of the Israelites consented to his religion and sacrificed unto idols and profaned the Sabbath. For the king had sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the temple and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised. In other words, they're not included in the covenant. They're not marked off as being covenant children and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profaneness to the end that they might forget the law and change all the ordinances. And whosoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he said he should die. In the selfsame manner wrote he to his whole kingdom and appointed overseers over all the people, commanding the cities of Judah to sacrifice city by city. Then many of the people were gathered unto them, to wit, every one that, took, that forsook the law, and so they committed evils in the land, and drove the Israelites into secret places, even wheresoever they could flee for succor. Now the fifteenth day of the month of Kaslu, in the hundred and forty and fifth year, they set up the abomination of desolation, upon the altar and builded up idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side and burnt incense at the doors of their houses and in the streets. And when they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. And wheresoever was found with any of the books of the testament or any, if any consented to the law, the king's commandment was that they should be put to death. Thus did they by their authority unto the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the city. Now the five and twentieth day of the month they did sacrifice upon the, upon the idol altar, which was upon the altar of God, at which time, according to the commandment, they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised. And they hanged the infants about their necks and rifled their houses and slew them that had circumcised them. Howbeit many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing. Wherefore they chose rather to die, that they might not be defiled with meats, and they might not profane the holy covenant. So then they died, and there was very great wrath upon Israel. So before I continue to the response, you guys hear the picture? I mean, it's pretty brutal. Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth goes in and conquers Egypt, comes in and conquers the Holy Land. The people are like, let's make peace with the Gentiles around us. That means, basically, let's give up our laws and our worship and participate in theirs. Um, Antiochus commands, you'll eat our unclean meat. You'll participate in our idolatrous worship. You will not keep your feasts and Sabbaths. You will not circumcise your children. So they're, they're commanded to circumcise their children because uh, God has covenanted with that, I will be your God and, and, and I will be your children's God, right? Um, and so you give them the mark, the sign, and seal of covenant admission therein. And they're commanded to do that. And then 
What are they, what are they doing? Forsaking that as, as, a, as a large group. Forsaking that. Forsaking everything God had commanded them to do. Participate in everything God had commanded them not to do. But there were some who held back, right? There were some who held back and said, nope, we're going to circumcise our children. Um, we're going to obey the Lord's law. And what do they do? They, they find their books of the law, their testaments. They tear them up. They burn them with fire. They um, slaughter the women who circumcise their, their children, and they hang the infants that are circumcised. Now, you, you could imagine the scene. This is pretty horrific. And they offer false worship to Zeus on the altar um, in the temple. Now, how, interestingly enough, um, you hear all the language here that you're seeing in Daniel's, Daniel 8, right? This desolate, desolation of the sanctuary, this little horn um, who comes up after the great conspicuous horn, Alexander the Great, after the kingdom split into four, right? Um, and this whole occurrence happening. Um, as Daniel 8 describes it. How, now, we don't include Maccabees in sacred scripture. Um, Jews don't either, by the way. Orthodox Jews do not include it either um, in their canon of the Old Testament. Um, Protestants don't. Roman Catholics do include it, um, as do the Orthodox. The reason, Eastern Orthodox, the reason for that is the apocryphal texts are in the LXX, or the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so we know Jesus and the apostles would have, been, would have read these and been familiar with these. Um, it seems in one or two places they're cited in the New Testament. Um, though Jesus never refers to them as scripture. In other words, he's aware of them, but note what he refers to as scripture is Moses, the Psalms and the prophets, which are the three sections of our current Old Testament. So the reason Protestants don't include them in sacred scripture is Jesus doesn't reference them as sacred scripture. You guys follow me on that? Um, with that said, um, we have throughout church history consider these pretty um, pious writings. Like, you know, you go read um, a contemporary Christian book that's really solid that tells you the history of Christianity and draws lessons from it. You guys follow me on that? Um, that has good wisdom, etc. We have considered them that, and sadly, Protestants are afraid to read them for some reason because they're in the Catholic Bible. And I would tell you, don't be afraid to read them because they're fascinating and you learn a whole bunch. But what's interesting is, how do they describe what's happened to them? Very great wrath, very great wrath has come upon them. In other words, they don't describe this like, um, you know, we're such godly great people and look at all the terrible things happening to us. This is actually God's wrath that's come upon us, which is exactly Daniel's point, isn't it? Okay, so listen to chapter two, because I want you to hear about the Maccabean revolt. Um, so, so listen to this. In those days arose Mattathias, the son of John, the son of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Jorib from Jerusalem and dwelt in Modin. And he had five sons, Jonan called Cadus, Simon called Thassi, I don't even know, Judas who was called Maccabeus, Eliezer called Averon, and Jonathan 
whose surname was Apphos. And when he saw the blasphemies that were committed in Judah and Jerusalem, that being Mattathias, when he saw the blasphemies that were committed in Judah and Jerusalem, he said, woe is me. Wherefore was I born to see this misery of my people and of the holy city and to dwell there when it was delivered into the hand of the enemy and the sanctuary into the hand of strangers? Her temple has become as a man without glory. Her glorious vessels are carried away into, the cap- into captivity. Her infants are slain in the streets. Her young men with the sword of the enemy. What nation hath not had a part in her kingdom and gotten of her spoils? In other words, all their stuff is carried away to the nations. All her ornaments are taken away. Of a free woman, she has become a bond slave. And behold, our sanctuary even our beauty and our glory. This, you guys hear how he refers to the temple? That's our beauty and glory. Our sanctuary, even our beauty, where we gather to worship God. Even our beauty and glory is laid waste and the Gentiles have profaned it. To what end therefore shall we live any longer? Then Mattathias and his sons rent their clothes, tore them, and put on sackcloth and mourned very sore. In the meanwhile, the king's officers, such as compelled the people to revolt, came into the city of Modin to make them sacrifice. And when many of Israel came unto them, Mattathias also and his sons came together. Then answered the king's officers and said to Mattathias on this wise, Thou art a ruler and an honorable and great man in the city and strengthened with sons and brethren. Now therefore... Come thou first and fulfill the king's commandment. Like as all the heathen have done, yea, and the men of Judah also, and such as remain at Jerusalem. In other words, people who aren't doing it are being killed, right? So shalt thou and thy house be in the number of the king's friends, and thou and thy children shall be honored with silver and gold and many rewards. Then Mattathias answered and spake with a loud voice, by the way, as a priest ought. Though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him and fall away every one from the religion of their fathers and give consent to his commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brethren walk in the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should forsake the law and the ordinances. We will not hearken to the king's words to go from our religion, either on the right hand or the left. Now when he had left speaking these words, there came one of the Jews in the sight of all. So one of the Jews are coming. In the sight of all to sacrifice on the altar, which was at Modin, according to the king's commandment. Which thing when Mattathias saw, he was inflamed with zeal, and his reins trembled. Neither could he forbid, forbear to show his anger according to judgment. Wherefore he ran and slew him upon the altar. You guys hear what happens? I cannot watch this as a priest. And he ran and killed the Jew on the altar. Also the king's commissioner, he killed him too, (laughs) who compelled men to sacrifice, he killed at that time, and the altar he pulled down. Thus dealt he zealously for the law of God, like as Phinehas did unto Zambri, the son of Solomon. And Mattathias cried throughout the city with a loud voice, saying, whoever is zealous of the law and maintaineth the covenant, let him follow me. So he and his sons fled into the mountains and left all that ever they had in the city. Then many that sought after justice and judgment went down into the wilderness to dwell there. 
both they and their children and their wives and their cattle, because afflictions increased sore upon them. Now when it was told the king's servants and the host that was at Jerusalem in the city of David that certain men who had broken down the king's commandment were gone down into secret places in the wilderness, they pursued after them a great number, and over, having overtaken them, taken them, they camped against them and made war against them on the Sabbath day. And they said unto them, let, let that which ye have done hitherto suffice come forth and do according to the commandment of the king, and ye shall live. But they said, we will not come forth, neither will we do the king's commandment to profane the Sabbath day. So then they gave them the battle with all speed. Howbeit they answered them not, neither cast they a stone at them, nor stopped the places where they lay hid, but said, let us all die in our innocency. Heaven and earth shall testify for us that ye put us to death wrongfully. So they rose up against them in battle on the Sabbath, and they slew them with their wives and children and their cattle to the number of a thousand people. Now when Mattathias and his friends understood hereof, they mourned for them right sore. And one of them said, they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath, so they got murdered, slaughtered. One of them said to another, if we, do, if we all do as our brethren have done and fight not for our lives and laws against the heathen, they will quickly root us out of the earth. At that time, therefore, they decreed, saying, whoever shall come to make battle with us on the Sabbath day, we will fight against him. Neither will we die all as our brethren that were murdered in the secret places. Then came there unto him a company of Assyrians who were mighty men of Israel, even all such as were voluntarily devoted unto the law. Also all they that fled for persecution joined themselves unto them and were a stay unto them. So they joined their forces and smote sinful men in their anger and wicked men in their wrath, but the rest fled to the heathen for succor. Then Mattathias and his friends went round about and pulled down the altars, and what children soever they found within the coast of Israel uncircumcised, those they circumcised valiantly. They pursued also after the proud men, and the work prospered in their hand. So they recovered the law out of the hand of, of the Gentiles and out of the hand of kings. Neither suffered they the sinner to triumph. Now when the time drew near that Mattathias should die, he said unto his sons, Now hath pride and rebuke gotten strength, and the time of destruction and the wrath of the indignation. Now therefore, my sons, be ye zealous for the law, and give your lives for the covenant of your fathers. Call to remembrance what acts our fathers did in their time, so shall ye receive great honor and an everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness? Joseph, in the time of his distress, kept the commandment and was made Lord of Egypt. Phineas, our father, being zealous and fervent, obtained the covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Jesus, for fulfilling the word, was made a judge. This Jesus is Joshua, by the way. Fulfilling the word was made a judge in Israel. Caleb, for bearing witness before the congregation, received the heritage of the land. David, for being merciful, possessed the throne of an everlasting kingdom. Elias, for being zealous and fervent for the law, was taken up into heaven. Ananias, Azariah, you guys know Elias there being Elijah. Ananias, Azariah, and Mishael, this is a reference, obviously, to the three, by believing they were saved out of the flame. Daniel, for his innocency, was delivered from the mouth of lions. And thus consider ye throughout all ages that none that put their trust in him shall be overcome. Fear not, then, the words of a sinful man, for his glory shall be dung and worms. Today he shall be lifted up, and tomorrow 
he shall not be found, because he has returned into his dust, and his thought has come to nothing. Wherefore, ye, my sons, be valiant, and show yourselves men in behalf of the law, for by it ye shall obtain glory. And behold, I know that your brother Simon is a man of counsel. Give ear unto him always. He shall be a, fer- a father unto you. As for Judas Maccabeus, he hath been mighty and strong even from his youth up. Let him be your captain and fight the battle of the people. Take also unto you all those that observe the law and avenge ye the wrong of your people. Recompense fully the heathen and take heed to the commandments of the law. So he blessed them and was gathered to his fathers and he died in the 140 and sixth year and his sons buried him in the sepulchers of his fathers at Modin and all Israel made great lamentation for him. Then you come to Judas called Maccabeus raising up in his stead in chapter three. So his son, and you get the Maccabean revolt at that point fully under Judas and they conquer by the way Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. Um, it's a pretty stirring story. Um, you can see why Hanukkah then gets celebrated because these priests rise up and throw the pagans out and restore the temple to rightful worship um, and circumcise the children. You notice the emphasis of that? Huh? Valiantly, circumcise them valiantly, right? <laughs> like We don't really understand that because we don't understand how central it is to um, their understanding of the covenant that children need to receive the sign of the covenant or else you're in sin, right? Um, God has covenant with us and our children and so if they don't receive the sign, that's terrible. You've left them out of God's covenant people. Um, which is gonna be interesting because questions arise then in Romans, for example. Well, as a Jew, one who's just merely one outwardly, just circumcised, right? And Paul's gonna say, no, you have to, to be a real Jew, you have to be one inwardly, circumcision of the heart or regeneration. Um, So then the question comes up, well, if that's the case, what's the value of circumcision, right? And then Paul's answer is much in every way, right? You're the ones, these children are the ones who are receiving the oracles of God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So just because they're not saved doesn't mean there's no value, Paul's gonna explain to them. And that that becomes a big deal for these people, right? Think about the risks they're taking. We're going to circumcise our children, even though we're going to see other women murdered and their infants hanged. Right? Um, okay. That's, you, you can imagine. Antiochus was overthrown by the Maccabean revolt. Now, I want to sort of run this. Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist. He's a type of the Antichrist. He isn't the final Antichrist. He's a type of the Antichrist. You can see how he's a type of the Antichrist, by the way. He makes some kind of covenant of peace with the people, supposedly, but he's going to burn up their law and make them follow his. He's going to sacrifice to false gods in the temple and exalt himself in that way. He's the little horn of the fourth kingdom. Now, um, the, the, the Antichrist, sorry, is the little horn of the fourth kingdom. Notice this is the little horn of the which kingdom? The third kingdom. This isn't the little horn of Rome. This is the little horn of Greece. You guys catch that? The little horn of the fourth kingdom is referenced in Daniel 7. Look back there really quickly. Daniel 7 verse 8. I considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns 
were plucked up by roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Remember, the fourth beast comes, then there's ten, and there's one little horn that arises among them. That's in the fourth kingdom. Antiochus Epiphanes, though, Daniel 8, is the little horn in the third kingdom. Okay, so there's a distinction between him and the little horn reference in Daniel 7. He's like the little horn reference Daniel 7. What's he doing? Speaking great things. Let's get another description of him. Look down at Daniel 7, verse 20, um, just so you can get more description of the little horn of the fourth kingdom. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, this little horn, and it seemed greater than his companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It sounds similar, doesn't it? Trampling God's people underfoot, and until, now here's when the little, the little horns reign in, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom, right? Now look down at verse 25. He shall speak words, this is the little horn, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times, and the law. Was Antiochus Epiphanes IV trying to do that? Absolutely. The festivals, you got to give up your festivals, the times, the seasons, and the law, you got to give up your law. And they shall be given into his hand. Now notice this, for how long? A time, times, and half a time. One plus two plus a half is how long? Three and a half. Even in new math, I think. It's three and a half still. Um, not in woke math, but in the newer math. So, still three and a half. So notice this little horn in the fourth kingdom acts just like Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, the little horn in the third kingdom, and for relatively marked out the sort of same period of time, about three and a half years. You guys following that? Um, in other words... This little horn in the third kingdom is pointing us forward to the time of the end. He's a type of the Antichrist. In other words, when I say he's a type of the Antichrist, I'm not just making that up. The text is telling us that, right? He's a type of him. Now let, let's, let's go down to um, him pointing forward to the end. Look at Daniel 8.15. Daniel 8.15. And notice a little bit of the language. This, is, this actually... Um, I referenced this in Revelation 1, um, but, but notice this. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and he, when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now look down at verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that had, has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Many days from now. Okay, so now, why, why is he sealing up the vision of this little horn and his, his, his trampling underfoot the people and profaning the sanctuary, etc. Why is he sealing this vision up? Well, it's for the time of the end, for many days from now. Um, he seals it up. Now, when does that seal get broken? 
and revelation, ultimately. Okay, so you're getting something that happens in history, which is a type of something that happens in history, he's prophesying, which is a type of something even greater to come. Now, this is one of the things you need to understand about reading um, this kind of literature that makes it notoriously difficult for people. A lot of times, the descriptions you're giving have more than one referent. Um, and, and sometimes we struggle because we want to make everything have one exact referent. And it, 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 it doesn't. Um, so the partial preterists, have you guys heard of these guys? Partial preterism um, is, and, and I've taught something similar to it, though I think I've, I have to rethink it a bit. But partial, re or have rethought it some, partial preterism is the idea that when you get to Matthew 24 and you read the Olivet Discourse, and you read the, uh, and, and Luke, etc. Um, the language is very clear that what Jesus is talking about is the tearing down of the temple and the surrounding of the city by the armies of Rome and the sacking of the city and the destruction of it in judgment is actually what we see happen in AD 67 through 70 under General Titus and Nero. I mean, the descriptive language is too clear to, not, to, to be a reference to something else. With that said, the Olivet Discourse is apocalyptic literature in, in its, all its forms, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In um, Luke, it's a little more um, historical than in, than in Matthew, but in the way it's described. Um, but it's, it's talking about the abomination of desolation, the coming of the end, the return of the Son of Man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reason I reference that is what, what the partial preterist wants to do is say, essentially, now partial preterist meaning the, the, the full return of Christ for the end hasn't come yet. Full preterists think Christ has already returned. That's heresy. Um, it's out of bounds. Partial preterism, like Sproul held to partial preterism, would have been this idea that, that it's partially fulfilled in 8067 through 70. There's still the end to be fulfilled. I think where they have credibility is in as much as clearly these events are fulfilled in 8067 through 70. The question is, is there merely one referent? Or, or, is this, or is Matthew 24 acting similarly to Daniel 8? Here's an antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, pointing forward to a greater antichrist. And is Nero, slash, or General Titus, I'm not sure who exactly the reference would be, probably Nero, in AD 67 through 70, in the destruction of the people and the trampling underfoot and the destruction of the temple, is he merely a picture of the final antichrist? You guys follow me on that? That's, that's debatable. So I, my point being, when we read this kind of literature, we have to be a little bit careful not to um, strain ourselves to make a one-to-one -one correspondence between it and everything we see. We have to try to understand the type of literature it is, which makes it notoriously difficult, um, especially if we want to have, like, here's this part of a verse, here's this exact time when it happened, <laughs> and this exact figure. I think it's intentionally giving you imagery that's being pressed forward again and again and again. So that um, when you read the destruction of, um, the judgment of God on um, Babylon, um, it sounds just like the destruction you read about in Matthew 24. The sun is darkened, the moon turns to blood, this kind of language, it's just judgment language. Then you read again in Revelation 6 as the seals are opened. Like you read this language, it's just the way the Lord comes in judgment. So we don't want to overpress that language is what I'm getting at. Um, but you're getting in Antiochus Epiphanes IV a picture 
um, of this Antichrist figure. We'll look at um, the fourth kingdom, at, you know, the four kingdoms and the fourth kingdom, what comes after the kingdom of God again in Daniel 9 next week. Any questions? I hope that was helpful. If you haven't read, read Maccabees before, you can see it's worth reading. It's a lot of fun to read, actually, um, and kind of startling to read. Um, but you can also see it's tied to Daniel. Yes, sir. <coughs> Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep. And correct me where my thinking might be wrong on this, but it seems that like everything you're saying now in the in those beginning chapters of Revelation that we went through in evening service tends to be most consistent with the idealist. Yeah, I said I I take an eclectic approach to Revelation, but there's certainly a lot of consistency between that and the idealist approach. The idealist approach is the notion that um, what you see, you keep seeing. In other words, it's descriptions of the things you're going to keep seeing whenever God levies judgment. And most particularly, the judgment at the end. Right? It's the, the way of describing how God judges. Um, I would argue Revelation 6, we're like watching it happen right now, but this isn't the only time we've ever watched it happen. Um, the question is, is it the full fulfillment of it? And no, right? It's not. Um, in, in one sense, the final fulfillment of it. it, it you're just going to see, see that judgment increase. But yes, it's much closer to the idealist interpretation there, what I'm saying right now, than, than the other approaches, for sure. Though I'm going to argue that I still am going to take somewhat of an eclectic approach, meaning I don't know that all the texts fit the idealist approach neatly. Some of them fit a kind of futurist approach, um, so, for example, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the casting of Satan and his enemies and, and his people into hell, like that's clearly future. Um, some will fit the historical approach. It's like some events already occurred. Like those churches are real churches that really went through those things. So that's where I'm more eclectic. I know everybody really would like to tie a neat bow around Revelation, but the problem with a lot apocalyptic literature is it's just not easy to tie a neat bow around. It's, it's, not, it's not. This is why when guys work out pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill stuff, and they argue about it, I'm kind of like, do you believe God is going to judge? Yes. The living and the dead? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is going to bodily return, resurrect his people? and resurrect unbelievers and cast them into hell. Yes. Okay, we're good. <laughs> I don't have a lot. You know, like we're gonna live in the new heavens and new earth. I don't have a lot more to say that, I, do I think it's gonna work out a dispensational premillennial scheme? No, I think that one's the most concerning to me. But there are several things in that scheme I think are, are right. Like to just agree with, everybody agrees on. There are some things people disagree on. Like, is there going to be a future mass conversion of ethnic Israel? Potentially. Does that mean that the nation of Israel is going to be set up as it was under Moses with a temple and sacrifices? That seems like an abomination to me. I mean, that, that actually seems blasphemous, that portion of it. 
the final sacrifice has been offered, why would you return to any? Like to, it, it, it makes Jesus a servant of Moses rather than the other way around. Right? Those are types and shadows. You don't return to the types and shadows once the, once the fulfillment's come. So that, that part of it to me is deeply problematic. Now I have friends who I think are good brothers who believe it. I used to believe it. Um, I don't think they understand Hebrews properly. Um, so anyway, I, that, 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 would be, that, would be a, that would be the strongest critique I have for them. Not their desire for a future ethnic, like mass conversion of ethnic Israel, future conversion. I, I, yeah, that's great. Who wouldn't desire that? Let's hope that that's what Romans 11 is saying. I mean, like, n- nobody's hoping God doesn't convert a mass number of ethnic Jews, right? Unless there's something deeply wrong with you. you you're like, I hope that's the right interpretation of Romans 11. I'm not sure if it is, but I sure hope it is. So, yes, sir. Yeah, so there's their, their, their original dispensational position, like Schofield, et cetera, was not that they were memorial, but toning. The, they fixed that. Um, for some time now, they're saying those sacrifices are memorial. Um, so um, that's what they now, I think, I don't know, I personally don't know any dispensationalist presently who thinks they're, um, atoning. I think everyone I know thinks they're memorial. I still think that's deeply problematic because why would Jesus, the crucified Messiah, need to sit on his throne in Jerusalem and oversee memorials of animal sacrifices when he's sitting right there? I don't understand that thinking. It's also problematic in their interpretation of the passages in Ezekiel. In other words, in Ezekiel, they want to say that temple that's described, that's coming in Ezekiel, is going to be built. Um, and then in Revelation 11, um, is a future temple that's going to be built and the sacrifices are going to be offered there. And they want to say, we have to take that temple literally as a physical temple that's rebuilt. But then in that Ezekiel language, the sacrifices are atoning. So they want to take the temple itself literally, but they don't want to take the reference to the sacrifices literally. They want to take those figuratively. So I think they have a hermeneutical problem there. I, by the way, there's, there's other hermeneutical problems I could point to. Um, it's, not like, it's not like any view perfectly escapes all hermeneutical problems. <laughs> you know, the question just becomes, which one do you think most successfully deals with the most of the text? You guys, you guys follow me on that? Um, not which one, none of them dot every I and cross every T to total satisfaction. I just don't, I just think some, some are more internally consistent and helpful in dealing with the text than others. Um, all right. Um, but yes, I, thanks for the question because we do want to be clear that I think every dispensationalist I know now, unless they're a whack job, right, which I don't know the whack job dispensationalists. I have friends who are the kind of faithful um, non-crazy version, right? You see the crazy version. They're the, they're the ones on TBN. And then you see the non-crazy version, like John MacArthur or whatever. Those guys are not saying that it's a sacrifice for atonement. 
None of them would say that. Um, all right, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning, the chance to spend time in your word, to reflect on what you've done, uh, what you prophesied you would do through Daniel, and what you've done in history among your people. Um, we pray that we would be thankful that even as we look at um, the reign of terrible, wicked nations, uh, we see your providential hand in it all working out your divine purposes. Um, we pray that we would see that even in our own day as we watch the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. Um, we would know that you are on your throne and you laugh as you know the, the coming future and as your son um, has been crowned and sits on his throne ruling and reigning. May we trust him um, and look forward to the day that he comes to um, resurrect us to judge the living and the dead, to consummate his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Daniel 9 next week, guys. So.